perfect storm or failed policy and first below next Belmarsh bring him home coming up on today's citizens report Welcome to the Citizens Report for the 16th of June 2022. I'm Elisa Barwick. Joining me today is Citizens Party leader Craig Isherwood. Welcome, Craig. Thanks, Elisa. Today we're going to be talking about uh, the fact that so many commentators are saying, oh, we're in a perfect storm of different conditions that just happen to have come together at the same time. That's why we're in an energy crisis and housing crisis, etc. No, it's failed policy. We'll make that very clear. And then we're going to talk about the effort to bring Assange home, hopefully that can happen. Now don't forget, if you like the show, hit the like button, subscribe and hit the notifications bell and we'll let you know when a new show comes out uh, and also share it as widely as you can amongst people that you know. So on the first topic, perfect storm or failed policy? So, uh, of course, in the last couple of days, we've seen the US Federal Reserve raising interest rates by a whopping 0.75%. That's going to put a lot of pressure on the RBA to, you know, continue to move in a heavy-handed direction to keep the Australian dollar stable. Of course, we have stock markets plummeting. We had in one day this week, 100 billion wiped off the Australian stock exchange. So we are in troubling times. You've got bond market worries. You've got crash warnings galore from um, many, many names. We won't go through all of those today, um, but we're updating those things regularly in our regular Australian Alert Service um, journal. Now, one of the commentaries we want to make though today, Craig, and we'll elaborate through the course of the show, is that every now and again, it's time that the money chambers, uh, changes, the money changes need to be kicked out of the temple. Christ did it, Franklin Roosevelt did it and we have to do it again today because our lives actually depend upon it. And Albo's got the, you know, the new Prime Minister's now got the most brilliant opportunity to do this, mm. bring in a public post office bank. Yes. There is overwhelming support around the country for this. There's, by, there's, there's members of both political parties and the independent, back, and the ben, independent benches and so forth, cross benches have support for it. If he wants to remain in politics... He has to kick the bankers out of Canberra, mm. bring in a public post office bank, bring in the security that people are crying for. Mm. He won't leave office in a short period of time if he does that. Yeah. Everything else that he tries to tackle mm. will be undermined unless he does that. Yep. And we're going to go through um, some campaign tools that we've put together um, so that you can all out there arm yourselves to build the support for that postal bank campaign um, from the bottom up and build the heat onto the politicians, put immense pressure onto Elbow so he's got no choice but to do this. And we'll put it in the context of the sorts of things that Franklin Roosevelt did because kicking the money changers out of the temple was not just a matter of saying go. It was a matter of bringing in stifling regulations and policies that forced them out. Um, so, you know, what are the stakes? Well, look at the energy shortages. I mean, and this shows how uh, supposedly efficient the free market is. Mm. Uh, this week, of course, the Australian energy market operator had to suspend electricity markets uh, because it wasn't functioning uh, in order to 
dictate prices and dictate quantities. They had to just cut the whole market out of the equation because as soon as they started to put uh, restrictions on prices and things like that, a lot of the energy generators were just, they would just stop producing the energy because we can't make money at that price, That's right? Because right? this is a for-profit nexus that we've put ourselves into over decades and decades of being told that governments can't operate efficiently, public entities can't operate efficiently, we have to throw everything to the free market, so we'll privatise it all, we'll corporatise it all, we'll break it all up into a hundred little pieces so that there's no unification of purpose, uh, and it'll be great. Well, look no, what we the, got. The neoliberal experiment is dead. John Howard referred to it as a neoliberal experiment just recently. So what have you got? You've got competition, destroying family farmers, right? You've had a, a massive reduction in actual food production in this country in terms of the mm. food that people eat. And you know, you'd still amounts of huge amounts of wheat and so forth, but I don't have a bowl of wheat for breakfast. I don't have a bowl of wheat for lunch, right? You have bread and so forth. But the cost of those things are going through the roof. And, and you know, we've heard the stories about the twelve dollar lettuce and so forth. Mm. I mean the concentration on food production in this country is a bit of a is a problem. Energy shortages. You've had the privatisation and the wholesale sell-off of, of you know energy-producing uh, companies for the sake of privatisation, mm. for the for the sake of the short-term gain of governments getting more money. But you've had the private interests pitted against the public good, and this should sort of in this sort of infrastructure, Elisa, should never have been privatised yeah. to make money out of basic crucial economic infrastructure like mm. power, about water, you know, well, health care. Yeah, exactly. Health care, we've talked about a lot. Housing, housing, I wanted to make one comment about housing because uh, I happened to come across this la a report on rental affordability snapshot by Anglicare that they released mm -hmm. last month. And, you know, because you think about the shortage of social housing, public housing, where people can get long-term, um, low-cost rents, you know, because obviously for people getting into the market to buy a home at the moment is impossible. Renting is very, very difficult. Um, and this Anglicare report shows, because, you know, for a lot of people that are fairly well off, you know, you might be thinking, oh, it's all well and good, we'll get through. But, you know, spare a thought for a moment for all the lower tiers, and there's, you know, that's the bulk of the population of people that are on lower incomes. So they gave examples in this report of people on JobSeeker uh, looking at the current rental market, a person on JobSeeker is, can access 0% of affordable rentals. There's 0% affordable rentals for that person. A single mum, there's 0.1% of the rentals on the market affordable for that single mum. A person on a disability pension, 0.1% of the houses in the rental market are affordable. And a retiree on the age pension, only 0.7% of the houses were available to that person. So, you know, we're just, what we're doing by putting everything into the private sector is where uh, it's a survival of the fittest approach where, yeah, a lot of people will be fine, but a hell of a lot of people will not. Um, another example of the money changes that's just come to our attention, and this is following, of course, on our long campaign for justice for the victims of Sterling First, who were people that were suckered into, you know, because, again, they're looking at, as pensioners, a way to have a cheap rental um, without having a, to fork out a lot of money. So they had a, a rental scheme where they would 
um, pay up front for mm -hmm. their rental. Mm -hmm. And then whenever they passed away, uh, the excess of the money would be there, the property, etc. Um, and that they were, you know, suckered into a Ponzi investment scheme uh, that fell apart and ASIC was negligent. Well, there's another case of this, which is Remy Capital. Uh, and again, it's an example of ASIC negligence. This was a investment, a property investor. So people would invest and that investor would go and put the money into various properties and pool the profits, etc. But hundreds of people lost their life savings when it collapsed to the tune of $124 million. Um, Remy Capital had continued to rake in new investments after it was already in trouble, similar to the case of Sterling First. And what it looks like from the initial investigations is that they did not provide audits and financial accounts as is required for an entity with a financial services licence. So again, where Some, was ASIC? That's right. And look, a lot of this relies on self-regulation. So the predators are self-regulating themselves. Yeah, And this is, is the insanity of the entire current process. But this process, Elisa, is designed to support the speculative economy. That's the problem. We've moved away in the last 40 years, since the 70s, and since actually late 60s, we've moved into the acceptance of the speculative economy. We've shut down and got rid of the institutions that possibly could have dealt with, uh, dealt with this, uh, this, this, uh, this shift. And, you know, for example, um, the Commonwealth Bank, which acted like an absolute bulwark against the private banking interests in the Second World War to stop price gouging, you know, to stop the banks from profiting from scarcity and so forth. And also the thing, the regulations that Curtin and Chifley brought in, well, it was sold off in the 90s by Hawke and Keating. Why was it sold off? It's because during the 70s and 80s, the general population accepted the idea of this idea of economic rationalism, of the neoliberal policies. They believed the government wasn't efficient, that we needed to have the magic of the marketplace. Mm. In other words, the people were duped and into selling off the Commonwealth Bank, and that's why it happened. Now, we're saying, bring back a bank like that, because look, their entire agenda for the last 40 years has collapsed in a heap. Increasing, massively increasing housing prices, homes we can't afford, water the farmers can't afford in because of the, 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 the private, effective privatisation of water. Healthcare, where the hospital system is completely overwhelmed with not just COVID, because there was already overwhelmed before COVID, but you know, in many cases, like in the Kennet government, 30,000 healthcare professionals were just taken out of the system because it was becoming more and more of a user-pay system under this neoliberal model. All of that's been proven to be completely ineffective, and we have to go back and say no more. It's not just a question of saying no more to this, that, and the other thing. The whole model is wrong. The speculative economy is wrong. It was proven in the Royal Banking Royal Commission mm. of just how rotten the banking system was. We've got the solutions to that, which is the concept of going back to serving the public good, this idea of the general welfare. Put that first and foremost in the minds of the political classes here. Mm. Go back to what Franklin Roosevelt did and yeah. why he chased the money changes out of the temple like Christ did. Yeah, no, exactly, because this is what Roosevelt said in his first inaugural address. He said, practices of the unscrupulous money changes stand indicted in the court of public opinion, rejected by the hearts and minds of men. The money changes have, have fled from their high seats in the temple of our civilization." And 
Um, but they didn't, as I said earlier, just flee on their own account. Um, FDR and his policy um, routine made them flee. Now, and I think it's just interesting because the day before his inaugural speech, you know, I think it was something 48 of the 49 states, all the banks in those states had shut down. They closed their doors. Mm. They couldn't function anymore. So you imagine, you put yourself as an Australian in a situation where all the major banks have closed their doors because they can't function. Oh, that, you know, people say, oh, it possibly couldn't happen. Well, it did <laughs> happen in the United States and Franklin Roosevelt was deal, dealing with the fear within the population mm. and that's why he stated, stated in that same speech, there's nothing to fear but fear itself. So he came forward as a statesman at that point and says, listen, I'm taking control of the situation. The first thing we're going to do is get rid of the money changes. Yeah. And he brought in a whole raft of, uh, of, of new um, uh, initiatives which started off with the PCORA Commission, yep. which was an investigation into the financial system where the bankers exposed themselves in such a way that they themselves proved to the public that they were crooks. Yep, exactly. <laughs> which was great. So that, that allowed Franklin Roosevelt to bring in a, an entire new raft of regulations, mm. one of which was Glass-Steagall, yep. which basically said no more, no more speculative economy. We are going to separate out the legitimate banking, retail commercial banking system from the investment speculative banking system. Yes, you can have merchant banking, you can have investment banking, but that's a different class of banking. The type of bankers that are involved in that will not be involved in the retail uh, commercial banking system. It just needs to be kept healthy, protected, in order to fund and provide the credits for the, for the, for the functioning economy. And that's what we've got legislation written for already for here in, in, in Australia, that we get rid of derivatives out of the, the commercial, the retail banking sector. We get rid of the speculation. We mm. go back to a, yep. a, a properly regulated financial system. Mm. We've got the legislation for that. Yeah, rather than, you know, cutting the budgets for health care and everything else, you know, that is crucial for the real economy, let's cut out this speculative cancer. Stop feeding it. Stop believing we have to keep it in existence. That can go. And that's the key thing that Roosevelt started. That was his starting point. But there was a whole host of other regulations. Um, the creation of federal deposit insurance, the Securities Act of 1933, the Securities Exchange Act of 1934, which led to the creation of the Securities and Exchange Commission. Um, so, yeah, he basically locked the banks in and kept them under control. Um, and that that was dismantled, of course, and over time what you began to have happen is the banks came more and more into control and that coincided with the takedown of the Bretton Woods system, the dismantling of the Glass-Steagall um, framework. And as the banks, you know, controlled and dictated policy more and more, which to this day has reached the extreme, um, where there's even a push to have them not just control monetary policy but to dictate fiscal policy too, and where you have the Bank for International Settlements telling governments like Australia what to do, aka things like bail-in policies and so forth, um, you begin to have the opposite approach where you start stoking up the cancer and then as a result of that, in our bankrupt situation, we have to cut budgets, we have to implement austerity. Now, Mr Albanese... Uh, when, of course, Franklin Roosevelt was doing all this, we had our counterparts here in Australia, Chifley and Curtin, who were saying similar things because they thought in a similar way they were taking on what they and other people in old Labor talked about as the money power. You don't have this um, 
edifice over the top of the politicians who tell them what to do. You don't have the bankers dictating. So old Labor were um, absolutely gung-ho about destroying that money power and having Australia achieve its financial independence, which would translate to other all other kinds of independence, like not having to support Britain in its wars, for instance, at that time was a big thing on their mind. Well, it was the Labor Party that established the Commonwealth Bank coming out of the 1890s financial crisis, where you literally had housing crisis, housing collapses back then. It was the Labor Party that actually you know, established Australia's first national bank in the form of the Commonwealth National Commonwealth Bank. People know that. Older people have a, rec rec a memory of of what the Commonwealth Bank could do. Now, that mm. was destroyed because it represented a threat to the private banking system. They saw that threat during the World Wars, uh, both World Wars, actually, because the Commonwealth Bank funded an incredible amount of uh, activity uh, in, in World War One, and it also kept the, uh, the Commonwealth Bank kept the private banks at bay during World War Two. Curtin and Chifley used that mm. publicly owned bank in order to be able to support the general welfare and to grow the economy, particularly during wartime era. So, you know, he, they were very can, much in tune with what Franklin Roosevelt was doing. Yeah, I was just going to add that people can um, hear more about that because Robert Barwick did an interview on TNT Live Radio, its internet radio station, with Malcolm Roberts where he discussed a uh, presentation that you gave at a 2015 conference on exactly that topic. And the discussion um, was just as clear as I've ever heard on what Australia could achieve if we go back to national banking. Mm. And the beauty of it is that in the last couple of years, um, uh, Prime Minister Albanese, before he was Prime Minister, was citing Curtin and Chifley. He was saying, we've got to look at the world as they looked at it. We've got to have the courage and the vision to change things. Well, I'm going to roll just a 40-second clip here, of, and this is um, from a speech that he gave in, at the National Press Club in July 2021, but um, the Labor Party put it together with some photos and whatnot. So you can see how they presented this, um, that they wanted people to have this notion of what Labor would do in government, and now we've got to hold them to it. Curtin and Chifley once spoke of victory and war, victory and peace. They knew that national leadership in times of crisis was about more than mere preservation. It was a question of vision, a question of courage. The vision to imagine greater opportunity for all in peace. The courage to begin that work even in the midst of war. We must show the same vision and courage right now. We should relish the prospect of looking back with pride at how we saw off this crisis and then emerged stronger. All right, so so that, you know, we now have to get this guy to live up to well, this. That's the key, Elisa. I mean, under Morrison government, that are absolutely fanatically committed to the neoliberalism policy, you know, the Bankers' Party, that didn't want the Royal Commission, they fought against it. Morrison stood up, I don't know, 16 times or more in Parliament. Are we, not going to, we don't need a Royal Commission, we don't need a Royal Commission. Right, only because his mates, the bankers, were seen to be such criminals as they were, and that was all highlighted in, in the Royal Commission. Mm. You know, the Labor government has this incredible history of standing for the general welfare of old Labor. Now, is Albanese going to go back to that? Can he fight off the neoliberals within the Labor Party? Well, that's got to do with what we mm. do. That is when yeah. I say we, the members and people that are watching this show, you cannot stand back and let 
just natural forces, so-called, sweep over you. We actually support Albo and whatever he needs to do. And as I said, if he wants to stay in power, take on the issue of a national bank, but particularly what's emerging, absolutely necessary right now, mm. adopt a public post office bank. There is enormous support for it across the country, amongst the grassroots, ordinary people that use post offices, amongst the political parties and political strata. If he does that, mm. he takes on the first step of the banking power, the, yeah. this money power. So let's go through these new tools, Craig, that we've yep. got here. And um, So first of all, there's a, there's a flyer, which is a four-page flyer that you can uh, take to uh, local businesses, your local council, any other local agencies, take it to the post office, get it out to anyone and everyone, which just lays out a short version of what we'll go through in a longer document. So that one's for mass distribution. This longer document is a flip book um, for the campaign for a postal bank, which will help people, and particularly our activists, to elaborate the policy if they go and sit down with a local councillor or sit down with their local MP. And you can contact us, call us on our toll-free number, 1800 636 432, or send us an email, and we'll put the details on the screen. And we'll also make this available on our website so people can print it off, um, put it in a folder and use it wherever you can. So we'll just go through this and give you a bit of a sense because the power is in, um, you know, the, the content of this, which is kind of bam, bam, bam in all of the real advantages, um, you know, for everybody, really, every aspect of the community. Um, so first of all, Utilise Network of Australia post offices. So, of course, we have so many of them, as you can see in that map. And turn post offices into branches of a public post office bank. And this graphic just shows how um, when there's excess savings, instead of going into the markets and into investments and speculation, you can actually have that funneled through. This is the way Japan Post Bank did it as a second budget where you'd funnel that into infrastructure development. Well, one of the interesting things here, Lisa, is the Kiwi Bank in New Zealand, as soon as it was established as, a, in effect, a, a, a similar to a postal bank, people just wanted to put their money in it because it was government guaranteed. Mm -hmm. And a former director of the ANZ Bank said that they were shocked about how much money was actually going to go into the Kiwi Bank. Mm. And then the next section is the seven benefits of a public postal bank. So firstly, guarantee financial services for all because this is uh, a public bank. It's accessible through the, all the branches of the post office. You know, you won't be debanked. Secondly, guarantee all deposits. It's a public bank. It's government controlled and guaranteed and backed. Thirdly, financial vi viability for Australia Post and licensed post offices. So, um, you know, as we've gone through plenty of times in the last couple of years um, with the uh, situation with Australia Post, so many of the um, local post offices are not viable and this would be a really easy way to keep them viable and functioning and healthy and keep the local communities in the same fashion. Uh, fourthly, ensure cash availability. Well, that goes without saying. If you've got a post office, then you've got somewhere you can access cash. Fifth, lend to local small businesses and invest in local areas. So basic banking services that the private banks don't see fit to provide because they make more money out of other things um, can be guaranteed by a public facility. Six, invest surplus deposits in national economic development. As we mentioned before, you can begin to funnel excess deposits into um, 
uh, development of the country through an infrastructure bank and of course we've also written all the legislation for that. Seven, lift banking conduct standards. Um, so by having a public bank, even without having any additional regulation of the private banks, you're already pulling them into line by the fact that there's a competitor, as was the case with Kiwi Bank, that suddenly people are going to go elsewhere if you don't toe the line mm. and give them what they want. Now, this next section, the State of Banking in Australia, shows why this is necessary and necessary ASAP. 62% um, of Australia, regional Australia, I should say regional Australia has lost 62% of its banks since 1975. Um, and there's some other figures there. Uh, the number of, you know, the big four that have shut down. And we've gone through some of these figures in the past. One of the most shocking figures is that there's 575 towns that once had one or more major banks that now have no form of bank at all. And we've got page by page here. Uh, the lists of those towns for New South Wales, Northern Territory, Queensland, all the states. So you can show these when you're sitting down with your councillors. It's quite shocking to see the number of towns. Um, and these are not just little tin pot towns. These are ones that had a major bank. They were big enough for that. But of course the bank leaves and so much more of the, the town shuts down in its wake. Um, this map in the state of banking in Australia just shows the... Australia Post offices that are further than 50 kilometres from the nearest bank branch. So again, another sense, gives you another sense of how there's such a lack of banking facilities available. And finally, in this last section, and this is, you know, also rather stunning, you see the support for a public post office bank. So uh, the LPO group who um, have put out this call for a community post office bank just prior to the election. Uh, you have uh, this excerpt from the submission to the Australia Post inquiry from Digital Finance Analytics from Martin North calling for an extension of Australia Post into financial services being the perfect solution. Uh, various other articles and you know we can't show them all um, but this one here Australia Post should become the publicly owned bank we don't so desperately need is from Emma Dawson um, who also is one of the people behind this next report, um, Post Bank Filling Avoid Securing Essential Services, written by Per Capita. Um, and, you know, there's a lot of union support in these realms coming from those networks. Uh, the Australian Economic Review ran an article reporting on a study by Paul Kaufman and Carsten Murawski from the Department of Finance at the University of Melbourne, suggesting that we might need a new banking model and here's some more of the union support from the CWU, National Union, CEPU, um, in a submission to the Commission of Audit saying that Australia Post should move into new services such as banking and financial services. Um, there's been a lot of support over the time and I think you and Robbie in a recent show mentioned this uh, other call by six leading economists uh, who had called in 2009 for a financial system inquiry and they just happened to suggest there could be a role for a publicly owned bank like Kiwi Bank mm. and boy were they jumped on, which they knew at that point, hmm, this is, this is a real hot one. Yep. Um, they knew that there was quite an alliance um, that would try to stop this. Um, now, this, uh, this uh, map here shows international examples of post office banking because there's actually quite a lot of countries where... Uh, there's a lot of support um, for public banking and I actually just wanted to mention too, uh, and I'll probably be writing this up for the next Australian Alert Service because there's been a real push in recent 
months and years, uh, both for a postal bank to transform the postal service in America into a postal bank, but also to set up public banks all over the place. And just the latest examples of articles that have come out in the last um, few weeks are in Manhattan, uh, San Francisco and Massachusetts. They're all saying we should have a state-owned bank, we should have a public bank for San Francisco. And for instance, just to give you a flavour of it, uh, the Manhattan Borough President, Mark Levine, uh, made a comment on this where he said a municipal bank would be a revolu sorry would be revolutionary for underserved and overlooked community communities providing greater access to capital for community development efforts so you know people all over the world are thinking along the same lines or in the case of Kiwi Bank have already moved in this direction Japan Post was which was an example we gave and the French uh, Bank Postal um, now of course we have which is featured at the back here, our own Commonwealth Postal Savings Bank bill. So it's not like this is something that, you know, we have to scratch around to try to put together. It's ready to go. We've done the hard work and uh, we will be getting this tabled again in the new parliament. At and the we've same... got direct feedback from supporters, the Labor Party, Liberal Party, National Party, the Greens, Catas, Australia Party, One Nation and so forth. They support a postal bank. This is not an abstract, you know, wish... This is a proposal, uh, a hard proposal that mm. you know can be implemented straight away and needs to be given what's taking place in our economy now. Well, exactly. You know, the, there'll be pressure on politicians not to go with this, but at the same time, the pressure from the people that can't find anywhere to live, whether they're just uh, a single mother or whether they're in Lismore at the moment, the pressure coming from people that can't do the grocery shop. That I mean, what's going to happen in? It could be any moment, any tick of the clock, if we no longer have power to our homes for a day, for an hour. Um, you know, th these have big consequences that we don't often think about, but there's going to be a lot more pressure coming on the politicians, oh, um, you know, to do this than that what there is not to do it. And we have the power to do it if we have the will to do it. Now, to build that pressure, at the back here we've featured some local governments that have passed resolutions, the Narrabri Shire Council, Banana Shire Council and Shire of Yilgarn. So the point is we want to use these tools um, and, again, contact us to get involved to find out how you can get these and, um, you know, what you can do in your local community. But we need to build that pressure at every level throughout the communities and that will begin to feed up through the system while at the same time we're planning to go back to Canberra as soon as we can as well um, and take you know qualified people with us to step through uh, individual politicians about how yeah. this can be done. And this show will be the live continuing uh, reporting on the campaign as we go along as we, usually, as we have done for a couple of years now. You'll get the latest as it comes up here on this Citizens Report. Absolutely. Um, I think that we've covered enough on that topic. Well, there's a lot so. here, Lisa. Uh, people <laughs> should make contact with us, talk to us, get the material, go on the website, get involved. It's up to the... Uh, look, we can't do it all ourselves here in Melbourne. No. We need an army of people out there yep. getting involved. And there's something for everyone, you know. If you don't think you can do anything, you're most probably wrong. There's, you know, yeah. ways for everybody Your to be engaged. local radio stations would be very interested in this. Take a flip book to them. Go, mm. you know, go on radio, talk about it. Mm. 
Mm. You know, you've got local councils that need funding very, very badly for local bridges and roads like we covered last week on the show. Yeah. Right? This is in their interest. Yeah, you might be on your local school council. I mean, there's so many aspects where everyone's getting pounded on the crisis front and it's not just a perfect storm where everything's just come together in just this miraculous moment and it would never happen a, that way again in 100 years. This is a collapse function <laughs> and for 10 years on this show we've been talking about this collapse function as a result of the speculative economy. Mm. Uh, there's a lot more we can say about that now but uh, we won't go into that because... Uh, <laughs> we'll say more about it every week every so week, stay yeah. tuned. Okay. Um, but now we want to talk about another topic. First, Billow, next Belmarsh, bring him home. So, of course, we're talking about Julian Assange um, and the reference to Bill Wheeler, of course, being the fact that uh, as soon as the government changed, the Nadessa Lingham family were able to return home to Bill Wheeler, the refugee family from Sri Lanka. Well, now it's Julian's turn. Um, he deserves to be brought home. He did nothing wrong. He revealed immense crimes no one that committed those crimes is currently on trial or currently on jail in a swampland prison like Belmarsh. Um, and uh, I've watched, um, and I urge other people to watch the two series uh, documentary, which is now available on ABC iView, which pulls the story together very masterfully, called Ithaca. Uh, and Ithaca was, um, the idea of Ithaca is... It was the hometown of Odysseus in Greek mythology and it was about the struggle to return home and not even just about returning home but about what you learn on that journey, the wisdoms that you learn and so forth. So it's a very inspiring documentary actually. Um, but before we go into that, um, Priti Patel, the uh, Foreign Secretary in the United Kingdom, is due to sign off on the ex extradition of Julian Assange to the United States where he'll be most likely even in more horrific conditions and may not even um, live. Uh, so she's due to sign off on that, the final signature on the 19th of June, um, any day now. On that date, Julian will have been imprisoned or under house arrest of one form or another for 10 years. He's been spied on, plans for his assassination have been exposed. Um, it's a horrific situation. Um, just in these last couple of days, over 300 doctors from 35 countries have sent a letter to uh, Priti Patel calling on her to block the extradition of Assange and have demanded his freedom. Um, they've done so before. There's a lot of voices. We've had a parliamentary coalition here. We've run campaigns to urge Priti Patel because it is a political decision. And by the way, the UK has prevented extraditions in a par the past that they have opposed. Um, now, the Prime Minister, Albanese, is a signer to the Bring Julian Assange Home campaign petition and has said recently that Assange's incarceration has gone on long enough. Now, when he's been asked about it just lately, he said, well, I'm not going to get on the loud hailer to do diplomacy. Fine, we don't care how you do it. Do it on the telephone, that, not on the loud that, hailer. That's most probably what's going to happen. He'll tell, uh, tell Penny Wong. Penny, we've got to get... Julian Assange back home. Well, if he decides to do it, hopefully. If he decides to do it, call up Priti Patel and tell her where Australia stands on this and we won't be very happy if you extradite her. Absolutely. Uh, extradite him to the United States. And we have the power to do that. Uh, it's not it's not loud hailer uh, diplomacy, but it can be done behind the scenes that this is, if this is sure. uh, what and Albanese tends to do. You know, we have immense influence, actually, particularly at the moment, for all the wrong reasons. I mean, here we mm. are. 
um, the, um, the base for a potential new war America wants to unleash against China, viz Taiwan or some other excuse, you know, they really need us at the moment. So we've got immense power to call up the United States and say, drop his extradition, send him home, and to tell the UK, send him back to Australia. Um, we'll make the arrangements. So that being said, I want to show a couple of clips from this documentary. I uh, urge you to watch the whole thing. This first uh, clip is a friend of Julian's that he met at university. Um, just for people who might not know all the background, and it's useful to go back over it again, even if you do, of describing exactly what Julian did to earn the wrath of the, um, you know, the uh, Anglo-American uh, forces. So watch this. This movement is not about the destruction of law. It is about the construction of law. First met Julian in 2002 in my first physics lecture at the University of Melbourne. So Julian was a mature age student at the time, I think about 30 or so. Um, really interesting guy, um, very much a passionate advocate for fairness, for justice. We'd just gone to war in Afghanistan and the question of whether Australia would go to war uh, in Iraq was a topic of discussion and millions of citizens were marching um, to see if we could stop this war taking place that I think people of the time uh, knew that it was a bit, it was bogus. It wasn't actually about the safety of the Iraqi citizens themselves or the safety of other nations around the world. And we saw this and we marched and we protested. Nothing happened. It didn't lead to anything. We still went to war. And Julian asked the question, well, you know, if, if marching civilians can't do it, if letters to our politicians don't do it, if, you know, really good work by journalists don't do it uh, in everyday life, well, what will change? What will enable us to prevent going to an illegal war? After that, I received a broadcast email from him about WikiLeaks, and it was clear, actually, that a real revolutionary idea had been born. And Julian's idea, I think, was that um, providing this anonymous Dropbox that's not linked to any major media organisation, um, in some sense, actually, the idea behind it is actually just a kind of park bench where a grey envelope can be left by someone, be picked up later by a journalist. And I use the power of cryptography, use the power of computation to enable that to happen in bulk on scale that's never been seen before and to provide protections of anonymity that had never been seen before too. So and uh uh, as I cited in the, the article I wrote in the Australian Alert Service about this um, from the book written by um, writers at The Guardian who worked with WikiLeaks to put out, because they didn't just dump, there was no mass dump of data. They only dumped a tiny, sorry, not dumped, they put out a tiny proportion of the documents after they'd been gone over and there were millions and millions of words of documents 
many times more than the Pentagon Papers, for example. They redacted anything. No one's ever come to harm as a result of these documents because of those redactions. Assange accepted everything that The Guardian suggested. But as these people from The Guardian said, um, WikiLeaks was basically the only publisher in the world that couldn't be gagged. It basically had brought the lawyers and the legal teams working for the most powerful nations in the world, for the US and the UK, for the bigwigs who were being embarrassed by all of this, it brought them to a standstill. So they had to make an example out of Julian and that's what they went for. Mm. Um, now I want to show you this next series of clips are uh, uh, Julian Assange's father, John Shipton. And I think what this really brings out is that both John Shipton and um, his Julian Assange's wife, Stella, um, neither of them wanted the limelight, neither of them are in this for any other reason other than to get their loved one out of this circumstance. And you can see that really clearly when you watch the documentary. But it also shows something that we um, believe and fight for, Craig, which is that real leadership and the best leadership comes from people who are brought to it and forged in crisis where they come to a point like Shipton did, he wasn't involved until the more recent period where they say, look, I have to get involved now. And when they do, boy, is it powerful. Mm. And Shipton, he's a quiet spoken guy, but he's obviously a well-educated guy from Greek history to the classics of literature. That's really evident. Um, and But, you know, he, he um, doesn't suffer fools either, particularly no. the media. So I'll roll these clips. It'll never happen again. If, if he goes down, so will journalism. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. These are the guys as well. Yeah, 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 okay. Everybody, we're here, we're here until everybody's satisfied. How does it feel to be the father of such a controversial figure, somebody who's known around the world? Well, uh, I don't see Julian myself as controversial. I see him as a a good man. I support Julian Assange because he's my son and this is what a father does when their children are in difficulty or in trouble. We are very trusting of our government because we believe we elect them and I'm sure that governments all over the world will be, begin to realise that they're faced with a tremendous credibility gap. Yeah. Just want to shake your hand. Thank you for Julian. Uh, honestly. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. You've done a really good job. Thank you. Can I just do I can't do 15 you... minutes. No, you can't. I know. Yeah. Okay. I will well, just be, I'll be, I'll be dead. My name is John Shifton. I'm Julian Assange's father. I've come to the rally here today in Parliament Square. You yeah, sit down. I mean, I'm fucking worn out. You know? have, you, have you seen him today? Only in the glass box. Yeah. Uh, how is he? Uh, is it, I can't answer that. How do I know? I'm sitting upstairs, he's in the glass box downstairs. It's, I would love to go and see him, but it's not allowed. I'll bring you a coffee here. I, I, I'm going to go I, and have a coffee. Yeah, I'm yeah, going to I, say, I, you, I, I know you, you. I have to go. I have no, to look after my questions. No. For the news, no, you, no, I just did 10 questions. You have to come to this. Thank the, you so much for that. Thank you. I'm done, I'm done. I'm done. It's okay. We're here, and this has only come about because we have 
a problem, you know. We have a child in the ship and I want to get him out. Now, you also see, uh, just in the background while I'm talking, you can see a clip of Stella Assange, who was also thrown into this, even though she was a lawyer on his legal team. But nonetheless, you know, she wasn't one to be across the headlines over the world. And you can see on this clip in the background that there she is doing an interview with her mobile phone taped onto the whiteboard, and she's got all her notes of what to say on the the, the um the whiteboard including remember to smile <laughs> you know which is hard um, because this next ship clip that I'll show of Stella you know you can see the, the, the how deep the emotions run um, so this was a little speech she made when they unveiled a, a statue of Julian in person and it's also the first time I see Julian's likeness in three dimensions since the 6th of January. We're in a situation now where the only two outcomes uh, that will happen is either Julian regains his freedom or he loses his life. I'm here to remind you that Julian isn't a name, he's not a symbol, he's a man, he's a human being, and he's suffering. He has children, he has a family, they're hiding him from view. They're silencing him. It is an aberration that Julian is not a free man. In no sane world can this be normalized. So, Craig, um, no more mucking around. Albanese no. has to do the right thing. He did the right thing with the Biloela family. He can do this too. And, you know, he, get, he got the recognition for the Biloela family. Yes. Um, going with the Postal Bank, as you said, it's the same thing. You know, you do the right thing and you will actually earn a huge credit and respect at a time when that is so sorely lacking amongst our politicians. And if he wants to stay as Prime Minister for more than one term, he needs to embrace the Postal Bank, he needs to embrace these issues of justice. Mm. He has to show leadership at a depth, the same as Curtin and Chifley did. I mean, Chifley hated going overseas. He really despised leaving the country because he didn't want to be... He wanted to serve the Australian people. And he went to London once and then stayed in his hotel room the entire time. You know, these guys never left the country was because they were concerned more for the welfare of Australia. And they actually had a, a... We had an independent foreign policy, right? Because basically Curtin said we had to look to America and mm. not to British, to the British, in order to be able to survive. Now, unfortunately, we've gone too far to the Americans <laughs> with the Five Eyes and everything else now. Uh, so... Now, and what Julian Assange has, um, has exposed is the sheer brutality of the actual system that we are under, both as a banking system, an economic system, and also international relations. And this is why you know, our organisation you know, very much supports the concept of peace through economic development, the whole Belt and Road Initiative that uh, Xi Jinping has brought forward and so forth. And it's the noise factor, the very large noise factor coming from the media and, and the propaganda factors that, that are trying to destroy that as well mm. as an active voice of the, 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 this, this very nasty um, you know, factor that's attacking Julian yep. Assange. Yeah. So stay engaged in the campaign. Stay tuned for next week. Um, contact us for more information for a copy of the alert service. And, yeah, that's it for this week. Thanks, Thanks. Craig. Thanks, Elisa. Thanks for tuning in and see you next week.
authorised by Robert Bowick, Citizens Party, Melbourne.